0: When you read the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, you discover that God is very pleased with what he does. Every day he looks back at what he has made and he says, this is good. Into to the sixth day and he says, this is very good. Everything God makes is good. Everything God does is Good. Everything about creation is positive and good. And we celebrate that. The fascinating thing is, there is one thing about creation that God says it's not good. He looks at Adam and he says, it's not good for this man to be alone. Now, if you think about that for a moment, what God is really saying is that he is not enough for Adam. Now, that kind of sounds like heresy. Because all of our lives, at least I was, all of my life, I had this mindset of God is enough. All I need is God. God, can, God covers everything. But here, at the very beginning, as he sets creation in motion, God says, no, that's not true. In order for Adam to be the fully human being I created him to be and to experience the fullness of the shalom of my creation, I'm not enough. He needs something more. And so God creates the woman and creates human relationships. There is something about that that I think is profoundly important. To be fully human, to be people who experience the fullness of God's created intent of shalom, we need other people. Now, Adam and Eve, they bring joy and love to each other. They bring uh, they bring all of these good things to each other until sin enters the picture. And when they rebel against God, not only does that does that affect their relationship with God, it affects their relationship with each other. And so you come to chapter 3 of Genesis, and God comes looking for them. What's going on? And he says, what happened? And what do they do? Blame and shame. He, did, he made me do it. She made me do it. And right at that moment, you get the first instance of human beings causing pain to each other. Now, these this couple who had trusted each other, loved each other, always done the right thing for each other, now is a pointing an accusing finger at each other, and now the pain has started, and you and I are living with that. You get to Genesis chapter 4, and now this pain, this blaming and shaming has grown into something even bigger, into hatred. And this hatred is so deep already that a man is willing to take the life of his brother. And this is where it leads us. And God's intent was that relationships would be some of the greatest experiences of our lives And we took those gifts, those relationships, and this gift of God, and we twisted it and turned it. And so now it becomes something that causes great pain for us. Now I don't have to convince you of that. We're all walking witnesses of the pain that we cause each other, right? I mean, so much of our lives is wrapped up in our emotional energy, our physical energy, our spiritual energy, all that we are, so much of it is wrapped up in dealing with the pain of our relationships. People who disappoint us, people who hurt us, people who use us, people who manipulate us. And let's be honest, we cause some of that pain for other people too. And in the midst of that, there's something in our minds that says maybe the solution is to run away from it. If I just get away from that relationship, then I'm okay. If I just forget about that relationship, I'll be good. You know what? Maybe it's it's because of all the human pain that we cause each other that we've gotten to the place where we may think that all I need is just Jesus and me and everything is good. And of course, that feeds into one of the b- deepest recesses of our sinfulness, and that is individualism. That all I need is me, and everything about life is me, and everything about that happens, I am at the center of everything. And that's what causes us to be people who cause so much pain. Because everything is about me. I, I love the products that The Apple Company makes. In fact, I have one of them in my pocket right here. Right? I mean, they make great products. A lot of people own their products. I'm not disparaging their products at all. But I find it fascinating that this logo for the Apple Company is an apple with a bite out of it. I don't know where that came from, but it makes me think of something way back in the book of Genesis. The other thing that intrigues me in connection with that is the names that they give to their products. iMac, iPhone, iPad. Now, again, I'm not disparaging Apple. It's a great company. They make great products. And and I'm not saying anything about that. I just think it's a commentary on our culture. It's about me. It's very personal. We're going to personalize this for you. It's me, me, me. Nintendo takes that to another level and you think, well, they created an entertainment system and they get it, right? Because they call it we. <laughs> they just don't spell it that way, right? W-I-I. They double the I's on that thing. You know, they, it's, it's something about our culture that says it's all about me. And here's the thing that I find when I read through the scriptures. And you see this sort of culminating in Matthew's prophecy. God takes our human relationships more seriously than we do. We think we can live with all of these broken relationships and it has no bearing on our relationship with Him or with us. ...our lives in general. We think we don't... ...that those things don't matter. Yeah, we feel the pain. Yeah, we don't like it. But really, we just push it aside... ...and we can go on with life... ...and it doesn't really matter. And God keeps telling us... ...no, it's more serious than you realize. And when you get to the end of of Malachi... ...he's talking about... ...he's been talking about relationships... ...through this entire prophecy... ...but when you get to the end of Malachi... ...and he's talking again about relationships... And he says, if these relationships don't start getting better, then I'm going to come and strike the land with a curse. One translation says total destruction. It's the word that's often, it's the word, the ban. It's the word that's used to talk about what God is going to do to the people of Canaan after he gives them hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to to turn to him, and they keep rejecting him. Finally, he says, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. And that's complete and total separation from me. And Malachi says that our human relationships, if we don't take those seriously, they're leading us to destruction. And God takes them so seriously that he gives us that kind of warning. Takes them far more seriously seriously. Than you and I do. And in fact, he takes them so seriously that he sends Jesus to do something about it. I think most of us think Jesus comes to restore our relationship with God, and he does, and that is vital and significant. But we are holistic beings. And for us to experience the fullness of God, for us to experience what it means to be fully human, as God intended us, for us to experience his gift of shalom. Then he also comes to restore not only our relationship with him, but our relationship with human beings. It shouldn't surprise us that God is interested in relationships with human beings, particularly his own people. Because God has been talking about that from the beginning. When Moses comes down off the mountain. He says to the Israelites, Okay, I've got God's word for us. I've got this, these laws. And, and Malachi says here, We need to obey the laws of God. And, the, and he says to them, Here are the laws of God. Here's what it means. Here's how you act to be my people. And the majority of those things are horizontal things. Majority of those things are how Israel is to treat each other. What it's like to be the people of God with each other. And we see that echoed throughout the scriptures. In Psalm 133, God says how the writer says how lovely and, and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in harmony, in unity. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's what God intended it to be. Jesus tells his disciples that last night before he goes to the cross, here's how people will know that you're my disciples. You love each other. You care about each other. You're connected to each other. And when you get to the book of Revelation in chapter 7, John sees this vision of all these people worshiping around the throne and worshiping the lamb. And he describes it this way. He says, I saw a vast crowd too great to count from every nation, tribe, people and language. How does he know they're from every nation, tribe, people, and language? Because he can see what they look like, and he can hear what they say. See, we think getting together, along, getting along together as the church means that we all think alike, look alike, act alike, do everything alike. That does not seem to be the heavenly vision. Our differences are not what separate us unless we let them. God created us different. We have different personalities. We have different things that we like and dislike. We have different ways that we connect with God. We, there are all kinds of differences about us. We have different viewpoints and theological points and ideological points and philosophical points. We have all kinds of differences. And this morning, as we're sitting here, we are representing probably the whole scale of things. But as differences dividing us, when Christ comes, the differences unite us. Because now we can learn from each other. Oh, you see it that way. I never thought of it like that before. That totally expands my view of God and the kingdom. But it's bigger than that, too. It's about our relationships all around the world and how we view people who are different from us. People of other races and ethnicities and nationalities Social differences and cultural differences, political differences, all these kinds of differences that, quite frankly, we use to separate ourselves from other people. And we tend to think, I'm better than those people. We look down on them. We're dismissive with them, condescending even sometimes toward them. We do that, I hear it all the time politically. How can you not see this problem? How can you not see this is the right way? How can you not see that's the wrong way? I mean, I hear it all the time. The thing that fascinates me about the birth narrative story in Luke's gospel is that this, this moment when, when Jesus is born into the world is the, the defining moment of history. Never has anything happened like it before. Never will anything happen like it after. This is the moment of history. Our calendars even tell us that. This moment when God becomes human flesh, steps into time and space. This is the most phenomenal thing that's ever happened. And God says I need to find a way to let my let the people of earth know what has just taken place. So he sends angels to proclaim this birth. And he doesn't go to the palace where the king is, he doesn't go to the temple where the priests are. He goes to shepherds out in the field. Now, the fact that he goes to shepherds makes for great nativity stories for our children, right? You get to dress up in the robe and wear the staff and, you know, we think those are really cute. And, and you know, we, we have this admiration of shepherds and all the pictures you see of shepherds, you know, they're, they're, we admire them. But the reality is, as I understand it, is that shepherds are actually outcasts in first century Palestine. I mean, they spend all of their time around sheep. They don't smell very good. And because their lives are wrapped up 24-7 with their animals, they have little time to go to the temple and do the sacrificing. They have little time to follow the spiritual disciplines of their faith. And so they are considered outcasts in the temple. They're considered outcasts in society. They're at the lower edges of society. In fact, there are very few, there be very few boys who, when they were young, were asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they would say, oh, I want to be a shepherd. It doesn't happen. In fact, if you're born into a shepherd family, in the back of your mind, you're probably thinking, how can I get out of this? How can I better my life than being stuck in this? And it's to those people that God sends his angels to sing the birth of Jesus and to no one Else. The people that everybody in that culture and society looks down on, is condescending toward, is dismissive of, are the very ones God values enough to tell them about this monumental event. That ought to say something to us about how we view each other. Every one of us has someone, some group of people we look down on. It's just, it's just human nature. It's part of our sinful struggle. We look down on people. And I think we do that because it makes us feel better about ourselves. Whatever that group is, Jesus comes to give us a new vision of them, to help us see them as he sees them. And you see that all throughout the Gospels, how Jesus treats the downcast and the outcast, unlike anybody else treats them. That's what he comes to do—to change our perspective. That's why the church needs to be at the forefront of dealing with issues like racism and dealing with issues that anything and the kinds of things in which people are degraded and demeaned and treated as if they are less than human. Charlie Dates is a pastor of an African American pastor of an inner city Chicago church. Talks about this, and and he says that most for most people in America, racism is a is a de facto issue. So, like, well, if I as long as I'm not a racist, then I guess racism doesn't exist. But he said, actually, I think we ought to realize that it's a de jour issue. It is built into the systems of our culture and our country, and there are lots and lots of people. We do not have the advantages that other people have simply because of their race or their ethnicity. And we think that's not a big deal. It's a big deal to God. And he says in the black church, he said, We not only have to worry about the, um, the slavery of sin, we have to worry about the sin of slavery. We just sang a few moments ago, O Holy Night, that third verse. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Jesus comes to give us a new perspective about how we view people who we might tend to look down on and to think less of. But here's the fascinating thing about Malachi's prophecy. As he's talking about relationships throughout this prophecy, when he gets to the end, he focuses in on one kind of relationship. And he says in verse 6, that this one who comes will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. I've been asking myself over the last few weeks, what is it about fathers, parents, and children that is so important to Malachi that he would connect it here at the very end and he connects you? God says, if this doesn't happen, then the curse comes. And all I can figure is that there is something so vitally important and significant about family that maybe we don't realize Maybe he's trying to tell us that all of our other relationships start with family. It begins there. He says they are going to turn the hearts of fathers and children toward each other. The word to turn is a a common word in the Old Testament. and, And it has all of the nuances and connotations that we think about with repentance. Something isn't right. And we need to turn toward what is right. And we talked about hearts, he's not just talking about that muscle that, that throbs within our bodies. he's talking about the very essence of what a human being is, our will, our decisions, our actions, everything about us. And he's saying, he's, Jesus is going to come, is coming to turn, to lead repentance into the heart, in the very essence of fathers toward their children and children toward their fathers. Parents toward their children. Children to their parents. Because it starts with family. And maybe the reason it starts with family is because when family relationships have the potential, they were designed to be the place of the greatest experiences of joy that any of us would ever experience. But when they go bad, they create the deepest pain we experience. I think it's important to remember... That every family has a level of dysfunction to it. Every family is dysfunctional. I mean, I grew up in a great family. But my family's not perfect. Cindy and I were great parents. But our family wasn't perfect. Just take my word for it. Don't ask our children. They'll tell you all kinds of things that aren't true. You know, we all know that, right? We all understand that. Sometimes it's hard to believe that though and to see that because maybe the pain is so deep and we've been hurt so much we don't know how to get out of it. So much of our lives are wrapped up not just in the hurt and pain that other people have caused to us but those closest to us have caused us because that's the deepest pain. If somebody in Montana says something negative about me even if i know them I'm not going to be that big of a deal but when one of my close family members says something that's a pain that cuts deep and jesus comes to heal that that's his desire that's his design because it's the heart of our relationships is the family parents and children children and parents i think we could add to that brothers and sisters Aunts and uncles, grandparents and grandchildren, all of our family relationships that can be awesome and horrible. God comes in Christ to heal those things. And to make us whole. And we yearn for that. Paul addresses this whole idea in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. He gives us three sets of relationships, husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. And each one of those sets of relationships has has a, a, a party that is has all the power in that culture and society and another person that has none of the power in that society. And he says, okay, those of you who have no power, you submit yourselves to those who do, wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. Not that many people would be surprised by that. Now, there is a surprising nature to it, and he says, do that freely. Do it Do it because you want to, because you love, not because someone is making you. But the real shocking part of that is that he turns it on his head, and he says, now, those of you who have the power, you do the same thing for those who don't have power. Parents to children. Why? Husbands to wives. Masters to slaves. Because relationships are never about who has the power and who doesn't. They're about this coming together, mutually loving each other, caring for each other, respecting and honoring each other. Paul says in Ephesians 5, the children and parents are to honor each other, respect each other preaching years ago, back when we lived in Wisconsin, about that passage. And I was talking about how, what it means to honor. This thing is specifically of children honoring their parents and respecting their parents. I said, think of someone in your life who, someone you admire, someone famous that you would love to meet. You think about that person, get that person in your mind. It might be an athlete or an entertainer or or author or whoever. And and one day, doorbell rings, your house, your mom answers the door, and there's that person standing there. He said, hey, I'd like to spend the day with your child. And your mom runs upstairs to your room and says, hey, so-and-so is here to see you. They want to spend the day with you. I said, would you then say to your mom, you know what, I'm kind of busy. I got things I'm doing. I don't have time for that. Just leave me alone. Tell them to go away. Would you say that? And the little boy sitting right over there said, no, I wouldn't say that. I don't get that kind of response back from people very often, but, you know, he, he was right. None of us would do that. And my question is, is then why would we do that in our families with each other? Here's the thing. It's a whole lot easier to be nice to someone that you're going to walk away from and maybe not see them again till tomorrow or a month from now or a year from now or maybe never. And it is that person that sits across the breakfast table from you every single morning who knows you, who knows the things about you, It's hard. And particularly when there has been such deep pain that may have come into that relationship and hurt. And maybe what what Jesus comes to do is to open our eyes and to give us the courage and the grace to ask forgiveness. Maybe to offer forgiveness. To put the the people closest to us as a much higher priority than we have been doing. To honor them. To respect them. Maybe it means listening to them when we'd rather not. Maybe it means being willing to engage in a conversation when we would rather not. We see them the way Jesus does. As beloved Maybe as hurting and struggling, and we get the privilege of building relationship in family. It helps to make us more fully human and to experience the blessing of God shalom in ways that we haven't. Without that, sometimes it's hard for us to to grasp how closely connected our relationship with God is to our human relationships, and particularly those closest human relationships. Jesus or, uh, John writes to, in his first letter, he says, if you say you love God, but you don't love your brothers and sisters, I got to question whether you really love God. Those two things go together. Think of it this way. Uh, there's a picture. I'm going to put up a picture here of the nativity. This is a picture that I just took it as it was off the Internet and put it into this slide. And, but I wanted to enlarge it. And so I made it bigger. And you see here the next picture, it's bigger and easier to see. When you do that kind of thing in PowerPoint, I'm sure it's true of a lot of other things, there's a little box you check that says maintain the aspect ratio. And if you click that box and you begin, you begin making it taller, it also makes it wider. In the same way. And so when you get it, it gets portioned the way it was to begin with. But if that box isn't checked and you begin to stretch it wider, then you see what happens. It becomes distorted. And if you try to make it taller, it becomes even more distorted. I think we wrestle to believe that, it's vi- that, that our relationship with God and with other people has a little box that's checked aspect ratio. I think we think I can have a great relationship with God and my relationship with other people doesn't matter. Sometimes vice versa. But it does matter. They're connected. Because the closer we get to God, the more in us wants to see our relationships healed and we're willing to let God do it. The more we love one another, the more closer we the closer we get to God. They function proportionately. I know it's hard. Relationships are hard. Most everything good in our lives is hard. But Jesus comes to help us, to give us grace and strength, to open our eyes, to be the one through whom we find our relationships healed. He's not asking us to heal them. He's just asking us to be willing to let Him heal them. He's asking us to be willing to let go of our fears and our struggles and to let Him bring about the change in our closest relationships so that we become more fully human and experience His shalom as He always designed us to experience and to live. One of my favorite Christmas carols is The Little Town of Bethlehem. I love the words of the last line of the first verse. The hopes and fears of all the years I met in thee tonight. Maybe what we need is to just see some hope that Jesus can do something we never would have dreamed possible. Maybe we just need to let Him have our fears and to find His grace. Father, we thank you that you want us to be whole. Give us the grace to want that too. And the courage to do what you are prompting us to do. Through Jesus Christ. Amen.